Hey, welcome to Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegriff, and I'm not the perfect dad, but every day I am trying to be better. I am so incredibly excited to share this interview with you today. You have probably already seen the viral video of the adopted boy receiving his very first birthday cake and his completely overwhelmed and emotional response. If you haven't seen it, go to Facebook, search for Fathering Our Future, and you can watch it there. But I am so honored to have connected with Joe Walker, who is the now dad of the boy in the video, Abraham, along with his brother, James. I was so moved by Joe's story and everything that he and his wife, Jamie, went through. And that's the story that I'm going to share with you today. This is the story behind the cake. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being with me. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. It's good to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a tremendous podcast episode. You and I had the opportunity to chat the other day, and when we got off the phone, I felt good. It was it was refreshing to talk to you. It was uh, you've got an incredible story, and that's what you're going to share today. And I think your story is going to do more than just make us feel good. I think it's going to challenge us. I also think that it's going to motivate and encourage us to do some really cool thing as things as fathers. So before we get into your story, before we hear everything, all the details, uh, why don't you just take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself, kids, what you do, anything random, just go for it. Yeah, sure. Um, So I live in Charlotte, North Carolina with my wife, who's also my high school sweetheart. So we're going on 20 years of marriage. We've been married so long that um, I can't exactly remember how many years. Um, Fortunately, she's in the same We have six kids, um, four biological kids and two adopted sons. Um, and because we, two of our biological kids are also twins, they're all crammed into that 11 to 15 year old range. Um, so six kids, uh, crammed in between 11 and 15. Um, my wife is our breadwinner. Um, she is a, a sales rep for Rodin and Fields. I am a recovering lawyer. I was a lawyer for about 10 years, um, did some consulting for a while, and now I'm a mental health counselor who works with kiddos. So uh, kids as young as three, um, although I really enjoy working with adolescents, teens, uh, and I do some work with parents too. Um, okay. They, they see on my bio that I have six kids. And they think that I have all of the secrets to parenthood. And so they, they come to me just for me to tell them that there really is no secret. Uh, it's all right. about connection. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Um, I think I mentioned we're in the Charlotte area and we love it here and, and we'll probably never move. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty nice area. I know my wife and I are looking forward to maybe visiting there at some point. It's on the list to do. So we'll get around yeah. to it. But Six kids, man. You are um, you're a dad among dads. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, fortunately it is my favorite thing in life. Um, yeah. and I mean that sincerely. And it's probably what I'm best at. Um, I'm a better dad than I am a counselor. Um, I hope my clients don't hear that. Um, and uh, then I was a lawyer, and then, then I was anything else. I, I just I really enjoy being around young people. I enjoy teaching, um, uh, which has been a real blast with my two adopted boys who come from West Africa. So they're assimilating into Western culture. Um, and so the teaching is, um, it covers a wide range of different things. 
Um, yeah, I, I, it's crazy times, as you know, as we try to get this scheduled, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, awesome. and I do, you know, I sort of dread the day when we move into the next phase and I'm more a dad from a distance, but I obviously that's, if I'm doing my job and I'm successful, then, then that's where my kids will end up. They'll end up independently. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I think, I think you're doing it right because you should be a better dad than you are anything else. That's, that's higher on the priority list than your profession. So kudos to you for that, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as father of six, you work with kids, you help people all the time. You're a stand-up guy, and I think that was part of the reason that I enjoyed getting to know you a little bit, hear your story. Um, Definitely want to stay in touch with someone like you because I think you help, as far as the community aspect of fatherhood goes, you help kind of lead and guide the way in a sense. And I know that Sometimes that's a challenge to hear because we're not perfect and we all make our mistakes. Uh, but the way that you go about things, conduct yourself, the way that you speak says a lot about you. So I'm looking forward for everyone else to get to experience that today. Uh, and before you get to tell the story, I'm going to give everyone some context to the story. Sure. So I just happened to be going through social media the other day, about a couple of weeks ago, and... I came across a video that was getting a lot of attention, and I'll do my best to try and share it on the Fathering Our Future page for everyone listening because it's worth watching. Uh, but there was a boy in the video who was adopted, and it was his birthday celebration. And the neat thing is that he's getting his very first birthday cake. And I think this is neat because it's not just that he's a little boy. He's not like four or five. He is. He looks like he's about to be a teenager, and he's getting his very first birthday cake. And when he gets it, he gets up from the table and he turns and he hugs his mom. And the cool thing is while you're watching it, honestly, I didn't know if he was ever going to let go of her. I mean, he was so just moved by this gesture and it's a beautiful thing to watch. So for everyone listening, for those watching, Joe here and his wife are the parents and they're the ones behind this incredible moment and the story leading up to it is what Joe is going to share with us today. So, Joe, I'm going to step out of the way. I just want you to start a little bit from the beginning of the story and tell us how you came to adopt your your two sons, Abraham and James. Yeah, um, thanks for the kind words, too, uh, especially coming from you, Anthony, and this um, really cool community that you're building. Um, it's, it's great to provide any value that I can to it. So thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it's interesting as you're telling that story, I've seen the video a whole bunch of times. I was there, I lived it. Um, and I still, I get goosebumps, uh, as I hear you talk about it and that hasn't changed. I, I really get touched emotionally anytime somebody tells me that they saw the video and that, uh, just the joy that it inspired within them makes me just feel really joyful myself. Um, and so that happened again, as you were sitting here telling the story. Okay. Where to begin? Um, so, uh, James and Abraham are from Sierra Leone, which is on the West coast of Africa. Um, my wife and I, as I mentioned, uh, we have four biological kids. And so we were actually not, um, looking to adopt. I, made the trip to Sierra Leone, um, to visit the orphanage that, um, one of my boys at the time lived in. It's called the Raining Season. It's in Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone. 
because friends of ours started it. Um, it's been cool. about 13 years ago now. At the time, it was they were just celebrating their 10 year anniversary. And I, and I, as I mentioned, kids are my jam. I love kids. Um, and I told my buddy, I, I want to go and I, I love to travel. I want to see what you've built. And I want to play soccer with the kids and uh, I want to read books with them. And I just want to immerse myself in this really cool thing that you, that you and your wife have built. Um, and so that was uh, January of 2019. I made my first trip to Sierra Leone, which um, was an eye opening experience uh, in and of itself. It's the seventh poorest country in the world. Um, wow. you realize that immediately, uh, when you land and you step off the airplane, um, everything is different. Uh, everything is different. Immigration is different. Um, although ironically, there's still a duty free store, which I found to be, quite <laughs> um, and, uh, so like I, I was taking in, you know, just the culture and, and, um, my surroundings and, and trying to get comfortable and. And uh, fortunately, Jason, had, uh, who's my buddy, started um, the rainy season, uh, has been to Sierra Leone many times. And so having him with me um, allowed me to get more comfortable quicker. And then the next morning, because we got in the evening, we walked up to the center and were greeted with um, songs and dancing and all of these amazing children who are uh, really feeling blessed to have um, security and school and food and an environment where their aunties and uncles really care for them. Um, and so all of these kids, there's about 80 kids at the rainy season, um, of various different ages. Um, they all have different origin stories. Um, and, and they're all there for uh, a variety of reasons, but when they get to the rainy season, they know they're going to be loved on and they're going to be cared for. And so they generally are, they're a very happy group. Um, James and I, uh, James is my oldest adopted son. Um, he, he, he sort of makes an appearance in the video because he's, he's looking around trying to take in what it is that all of these customs are when we're <laughs> yelling, blow out the candles and make a wish. You can see he's thinking, what are these, what are these crazy people talking about? Um, so he, he's also in the video. Um, James, I met first. Abraham was not at the center at the time. Um, and James and I made a connection. And uh, part of that was because he spoke really good English. And even though he was really young at the time, he approached me and um, he asked me if I'd play handball with him. Um, he asked me if I'd play soccer with him. And so he, we became buddies. Um, my wife and I after that trip made a decision to sponsor him, uh, which is an option through the rainy season. In addition to several other kids that, um, I created a bond with while I was there. Um, and with sponsorship at the rainy season, we, uh, we gained the opportunity to Skype with them once a month. So that was really cool. So, you know, once a month, the whole family would get on and, uh, all of the kids that we sponsored plus probably a dozen more, um, would all jump on to the Skype and we could ask them about school and soccer and things that were going on in their lives. And then we could also show them, um, you know, maybe we would Skype from a baseball field or a soccer pitch and we could show them, you know, what was kind of going on here in America. That was um, just the sponsorship alone was a really cool experience. And it, and it made me feel like I was still a part of Sierra Leone. Um, Cause once you, once you touch down in a place like that, it just, it becomes a piece of you. Um, I will continue to go back to 
the reigning season in, in Sierra Leone in general for the rest of my life. I just, it's just becomes a part of you. Um, so that goes on for six months. James and I uh, become pretty close. And then, uh, it was June 21st. Um, it was his birthday and I had, I was actually in Madrid. So time zone wise, I was pretty close to him at this point, as opposed to being in the States. I was on vacation with my wife and ironically, um, uh, Jason and Erica, the founders of the rainy season. So the four of us happened to be in Madrid on vacation together. I'd asked for a Zoom, a special, uh, sorry, a Skype, a special Skype with James in the morning just to tell him happy birthday. Uh, so we surprised him. It went really well. He was super excited. Um, that, that, you know, that kind of came out of nowhere. And three or four hours later, I guess, um, I got a message over WhatsApp from the executive director of the rainy season in Freetown. He's become a very close friend of mine. His name is Sori Kamara. He's a, he's a tremendous guy, incredibly smart and caring. And, um, he does a great job of running the center. Um, to tell me that the organization who had collected James from the streets, um, James had been abandoned at a very young age. He was living homeless on the streets of Freetown. And so it was an anti-trafficking group who had actually collected him. And uh, the rainy season had a partnership with this group where they would take these kids in and provide support for them. But through that partnership, the the group that collected him, they still kind of controlled what happened, uh, what happens to those particular kids moving forward. And on his birthday, um, this particular group decided that they were going to reunify James with um, members of his family. And Sori called to tell me this because he knew the bond that I had developed with James. Um, I asked if I could get another uh another Skype with him. Um, I wanted to celebrate the fact that he got to go home, although I sort of understood that maybe he wouldn't be terribly excited about this because he had been put on the streets at one point in time. And uh, so I did get the Skype and he was, um, he was completely downtrodden. Um, I mean, he was really upset. Um, he believed in his heart that he would be put back on the streets again. And at the time I didn't fully understand I didn't understand this. I knew that he had siblings. I knew that um, his biological father was deceased, but his biological mother was still alive. And, and I, and I was having trouble through ignorance really as a, you know, just my Western ignorance, understanding how you could put a kid on the street at such a young age. Um, and, it, and what it really comes down to Anthony is that um, in that particular country, where uh, it, it is so poor and everybody's struggling. Um, James and Abraham's biological mother is really dependent upon somebody to care for her and provide for her. She's illiterate. She lacks basic skills. And when you get boys in the house that are at a certain age, a man will come into that house um, because he doesn't want to be challenged. And so it's still a very patriarchal wow. type society. Um, I, I, I tease my Sierra Leonean friends between us. I say, you know, we're just a hundred years behind here in Sierra Leone with the exception of everybody's got an Apple iPhone. Um, and they do. Everybody's got a yeah. phone. Um, but there's a lot that is, now that Sierra Leone has its independence back, it was a, it was a colony uh, um, of the, the UK for a really long time. They are working to modernize. They're just, ha- they're starting from scratch. Um, so they have a long wow. way to go. So I started to understand a little bit more about why James was not eager to get home. 
I asked the center if I could buy him a cell phone uh, just to stay in touch. Again, adoption is, is nowhere on the radar. This is just a young man who I recognize is having a really bright future. And if there was something I could do to support him, I wanted, I wanted to be a part of that. Awesome. And I thought if I could at least get him a phone, we could stay in touch. Um, and so there was a couple days while they processed uh, the reunification. They were able to get the phone. And he, and he FaceTimed me on the drive out to the province, Port Loco, where he was um, from and where his, his mother still lives today. And, um, he, he, I, and I'm, this one will make me emotional, but, um, he asked me on the drive, he said, um, uncle Joe, cause everybody's an uncle there. Uncle Joe, um, you know, my, my father's deceased and I'm going home and I have a feeling I'll be put back on the streets and I don't know what my future is going to be. Um, I want to know if I can call you dad it would be really cool if, um, if I knew I had a dad somewhere in the world that was caring for me and praying for me and, and thinking about me. Um, and I said, of course you buddy, you can call me whatever you want. Um, and if you want to call me dad, I'm, I'm happy, um, to serve that role for you. Um, that afternoon he, he FaceTimed me again had a chance to meet Abraham. His brother was living with his mother. Um, he was, uh, he had also been left on the streets. Um, he'd also been brought to the rainy season and he had been reunified just before I made my trip in January. So okay. he was in that kind of, he was getting ready to go back to the streets. Um, and, um, I talked to their mother, uh, that, that conversation was translated and her only ask was, um, can you please help me get my boys back to the center? I, 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 I'm going to have to put them on the streets. I can't feed them. I can't, um, pay for their school. And, and my village will excommunicate me. Those aren't what her words as are mine. Um, but I will be shunned if I have these boys here. And so we went to work. Um, it took us 30 days, which in Sierra Leone is, um, a, a really speedy, a time frame. Um, their mother worked really hard to get the documents that we needed. Uh, and in the meantime, I FaceTime with James and Abraham every day for 30 straight days. So James would walk to a place, take a couple hours and he would walk to a place where he could pick up a Wi-Fi signal off a local college. And, uh, and he would use that to FaceTime me and we would just try to hit each other at the right. So whatever I was doing, no matter what, if, if he rang through, it was like drop everything. Cause I know that yeah. he'd made this real effort. Um, sure. and that's how I met Abraham. We, when we got James back to the center, we were able to get Abraham back too. That was the end of July. Um, so it took about 30 days. I was on a plane a week later, uh, to get back over to welcome James back to the center to meet Abraham, um, to hang out with the rest of the kids again, which I enjoy doing. And the connection that had developed over that 30 days was just stronger. Um, it, it just, he, James asked me, we, we spent a lot of time together and he was asking me questions about things that he saw while he was away from the center. Um, during the drive out to Port Loco, he saw little kids sitting on the side of the road. And this is something that's very, it's very common um, in and around Freetown. Uh, they take big boulders and they heat them and they crack them. And then the kids sit there with um, hammers uh, and they just break rocks into smaller rocks and they make gravel by hand and they hope to sell the gravel 
to construction companies that are doing roadworks projects. Wow. And they sit there all day and they just make rock. And James was seeing all of this and he, and he was really young when, you know, when he was put on the streets. And so he didn't remember a lot of these aspects of kind of the outer areas around Freetown. And so he had a lot of questions about why is this and um, what can, what can I do to help? And um, I was really touched by his empathy and his, you know, his reckoning, even though all of this stuff was happening to him and he's living uh, in an orphanage in this environment um, and there's some abandonment issues, he was still super cognizant of the, the people around him that were younger than him or about his age and maybe they had it worse. And he felt bad about that, like genuinely wow. concerned. And that touched me. Um, sure. Really poor. Came home from that trip. Um, I said to my wife, I think there's something bigger going on here. My wife said, no, there's not. Uh, we, we have four <laughs> biological kids. Um, and this is when uh, the adoption started to come into play. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to think that, right. That this is a bit of a God wink. And, um, you know, like I didn't go there for this and yet all this stuff happened and I've been a part of it. And that just, it didn't feel like a coincidence. Um, my wife was pretty resistant. Uh, she'll be the first to tell you that um, because life was already crazy here um, with, with four kids. Uh, so that for, for a couple of weeks, we kind of went back and forth and um, we weren't really advancing the ball any. Um, my wife and I make a really great team. So it was never, the conversations were always, you know, really calm and kind of well postured, but we were definitely at different ends of the spectrum on where we wanted to take this thing. And so where we settled was, um, I said, look, take a trip, go meet them. Um, if, if you meet them then it's not in your heart and you don't feel what I felt, then I'll never ask you about it again. And I'll support them from afar. Um, I'll continue to visit um, a couple times a year and I'll be the best darn, uh, you know, uh, pseudo adopted dad or, or uncle or whatever they want to call me um, yeah. from the States that I can be. She had no desire to make the trip. Um, my wife is very busy um, and uh, this was just not something she doesn't have the same adventurous travel um, thirst that I do. And so this wasn't necessarily on her radar, um, but she agreed. She understood that, you know, that was a fair ask. Um, within 24 hours of her landing, I knew something that touched her. Um, she tells a story of walking up to the center and uh, James was actually in school um, and the older kids go to a school that's right next to the center and they can look out from uh, the windows, uh, which aren't really windows, they're just, you know, car poles in the stone. Yeah. Um, and they can look out over the center and she knew him when she saw him and he smiled at her and, and they waved and, um, and just that spark happened that that's undescribable. Um, yeah. And so she got to know James and Abraham that week. She came home and said, you know, let's, let's explore this. We talked to our four biological kids. It had to be a four out of four. Um, and it was, um, I spent hours talking to my friends in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leonean friends of mine to make sure the boys would be a good fit to assimilate, uh, into Western culture for them 
um, that, sure. that this would be a good thing for them. We, um, we set up a Skype once all of that, once we had sort of the blessing of um, what I would consider really informed um, Sierra Leonean elders, once we had their blessing, um, we asked the boys if this is, they're old enough, if this is something that they w- would want. Um, we would like to invite them to be a part of our family more officially. We asked them to take a couple days and write down a list of all the things that would be hard about that. Because the, the, the cool things are pretty easy. Like that list is pretty easy to come up with when you're living in an orphanage in a third world country. Um, but things like moving 4,000 miles away from everything you know and language barriers and different schools and all of this stuff. Like we just wanted them to really think on this. And, uh, and we Skype with them two days later. And, and the number one thing that they were nervous about was the plane ride. And so we thought, well, we, we could probably get you through that. Um, and so that November we, um, started the process and we brought them home. Uh, I, I went over once after COVID, um, and then, uh, went back again and brought them home at the end of October. So the process took about two years, wow. almost. Uh, almost to the month. Yeah. So that's, wow. I know it's a, I did a lot of talking there, but the story's got so many twists and turns. And we went from not being a family that was looking to adopt to being in the position of really having to battle um, the various obstacles that adoption throws at you to make sure that we could get the boys home. Yeah. Well, I know you had opposition um, with the process. And I know there were some challenges that we talked about. Clearly, just by the dates that you've given, you started in January of 2019, and it took two years. So COVID happened in the middle of that, which Mm -hmm. had to throw a wrench in everything. Uh, And I know when we talked, you mentioned something about for the boys to be able to come to America, they had to have original birth documents. Yeah, so that even more so than COVID was the birth records issue. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting being in, uh, mental health care. I'm acutely aware of how culture plays a part in everything. We have to be very mindful of when we're, when we're working with different people, you know, what is, what is their background where do they come from? And, um, but this was like, that times a hundred. Um, the U.S. State Department would not process the adoption until we could provide original birth records. But they don't do original birth records in Sierra Leone. That's not a very common thing. Um, most kids are born uh, outside of the city, out in the provinces where it's very rural, and it's usually a midwife um, birth, if that. And that's because people don't have the funds or the resources to go to a hospital mm-hmm. So you usually only go to a hospital if um, there's something wrong during the birthing process. Um, and so there are no original birth records for our boys. Um, wow. we, we really don't even know how old they are still. We had birth certificates created for them um, in order to process the adoption. And that literally meant that um, their, uh, it was really their uncle who led this charge, went to a hospital um, just the local hospital told, uh, the receptionist that he needed to get two birth certificates for two adolescent boys. They asked them the birth dates. They put it on a piece of paper, they sign it and stamp it. And then all of a sudden they had birth records. That was wow. it. Like there, there's no, 
centralized filing system. They're right. It's, it's just different. Um, Word of mouth. Yeah. And so our adoption was actually rejected. Um, and it was rejected on the sole grounds that we didn't have original birth records. And so we had to file an appeal and through the appeals process, we were able to get, and I just, uh, another goose bump moment for me. Um, the, the amount of work that the people at the rainy season did um, to go procure like affidavits from uh, government representatives saying that, no, we don't have a centralized filing system for this. Like if, if they don't have an original birth record at their house, it, there probably isn't one. Um, and, and there's, and there's no way to get one or to print one. Like it doesn't exist. And this is not something folks in Sierra Leone don't love to sign their name to official documents. Um, they can be a little um, suspicious of, of the process of adoption in and of itself, just because there's been trafficking all over the world that we're certainly not immune to that here in the United States, but definitely in West Africa. Um, and we really pushed and found the right people and were able to build a case and, and take it um, back to the, uh, to the USCIS. And, and then finally we got the notice. I was actually, I was, um, I was, I had gone back to Sierra Leone to visit the boys as soon as they lifted the COVID restriction. Uh, the COVID restriction was actually put on by the orphanage. They were trying very hard to protect the kids, keep everybody sure. secure. The aunties weren't coming in and out of the orphanage. So the aunties had been there for months. Um, they weren't seeing their own families. There was no movement in and out, uh, with the exception of just getting water and food in and medicines. Um, and so as soon as they lifted that, um, that restriction, I was there a week later. So I booked a plane ticket immediately. Um, the Monday I arrived, I walked up to the center and James did not go to school that day because he knew I was coming. Um, Abraham being the, the good little student that he is, he did go to school. Um, and so James and I walked over, we visited Abraham um, we came back to my hotel. I had to go buy some groceries. So he was going to walk with me to do that. And my wife called us. So now we got the time difference in play, right? And so it's about midday, Sierra Leone on a Monday. And my wife calls. She was taking my other kids to school. And in the mailbox was the approval letter. So the awesome. Monday that I arrived um, and, and saw the boys, I got in on a Sunday night, but saw the boys on Monday, which was also um, two years uh, to the day that my wife visited. So like all these, li- all That's these, so cool. right. It's just really, it's just, it all kind of lined up. We got the letter. And so there's James and I hug and, and we cry. Um, we go right back up to the school and we tell Abraham and we hug and cry. Uh, and so that was, I think in August, um, of 2021. And then I, I came home and, we finished out all the final things that need to be uh, finalized. And then I was back in October to bring them home. And I booked a, a one-way ticket because I wasn't coming home without them. That's um, cool. And you never really know what's going to happen. Like they tell you it's ready, but sure. Um, you know, you never know. So yeah. So that's. I didn't, really ask, I didn't really ask you about this, but um, what was that moment like? So your wife calls you. It's been approved. You hug your boys, and now they are your boys. Now you're yeah. officially dad. I mean, what's it like in that moment? I mean, I know what it's like for 
one of my kids to be born and then to hold the baby and to realize that I'm dad. But what's it like in that moment? You've got someone who's lived through life, a difficult life, especially by our standards, mm-hmm. and you've gone through all of this work, and now it's happened. Now you're officially dad. What's that like? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you when it really hit me even more so than then was once we got on the airplane in Freetown, um, got through immigration. Um, they, they looked at our passports, took our tickets and let us walk onto the airplane, uh, so that we could fly to Brussels. And, um, it, it be, everything became real. I mean, you just, yeah. you just adoption, international adoption, especially international adoption in a non Hague country like Sierra Leone. Like you just, you never know if it's really going to come to fruition. And even like to the bitter end, like you're just waiting for something else to happen. Um, and like it was like, you know, you give the tickets. We walk up the ramp to the airplane because there's no, uh, there's no, you know, jetway. Like you walk yeah, out on the runway and <laughs> climb up the stairs and get on the airplane. And it was just like this, take this deep breath. And, and it was like our, our family just got bigger. Um, I, I, and I, the excitement that I, you know, what did it do? Like I felt probably excited and proud more than anything. Um, I knew these boys so well and I couldn't wait to introduce them to the rest of their family. I did have a chance to take my biological sons, Joe and Evan over right before COVID January, 2020, I took the boys over um, to meet their brothers on their turf. I thought that was really important um, because they're very similar age wise, but the girls hadn't met them. Um, My wife had only been over there the one time. Uh, My biological sons had only met them the one time. And so then it just became this like race to get home. Like I just, I, I was just so happy. And then, and then watching all the firsts, like the, you know, the first time they'd really been on a boat was the, uh, the trip to the airport. You've got to cross a, a bay. Um, and the first time on an airplane and the first time, you know, eating European food and dealing with European money as we were sitting at the airport in Brussels and then getting to America and having our family waiting for us there. And it was middle of the night because we had, missed the flight because of immigration and had a five hour layover. And it was just, it was the middle of the night. So we basically had the airport to ourselves, which was cool. Um, and we just hugged and it just felt really natural. Like my boys, James and Abraham turned the corner and they saw uh, our family there with balloons and stuff. And they just took off running and they didn't know that they were going to be there. Like I didn't tell them. That's and cool. they took off running and they ran through the exit part and everybody hugged. And it just felt like we had all been waiting on this and working so hard for this. And I should have mentioned that once we started the adoption process, we got to Skype with them once a week. And so we were, you know, we, for two years, every week we were talking with them. And so we were building relationships and sure. my kids here we're building my you know relationship with our kids there and um so i think it it just felt really natural like it was supposed to happen and um and yeah like there was no um it's certainly not the same as is the birthing process that's very different um 
but it, it, um, there's no fear. There's no concern. There's no nerves. It's certainly, you know, there's a lot of that stuff going through the adoption process, but when you see the pure emotion, the hugs, the joy, the tears, um, my, my daughter, Riley and Abraham, who are still attached at the hip eight months later, holding hands, walking through the airport. I mean, this is, my daughter's never met him. And, and she's like, got Abraham and they're walking through the airport and she's, she wants to show him everything. It's midnight and she wants to show him all this. Thing. He's probably exhausted. Um, that was really cool. It just felt like our family was complete. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, it's an incredible story. And you know, that's for everyone who's seen the video, that's the context behind it. Like that's yeah. such a cool and special moment because of everything that you and your wife and your four kids went through to try and make this a reality. And it speaks volumes of you. It speaks volumes of your character. Uh, again, that's that's why I think you being on the podcast today and sharing your story is so influential. Not just you know, not, not just because it's a neat story, but you you dim, you demonstrate and display and illustrate a lot about yourself and your character and how you went about that. Um. So here's one, here's another thing that I want to ask you, kind of germane to what we've talked about with the concept of, of adoption. Okay, I want you to talk a little bit about this because it's a big topic right now. Um, yeah. And let me let me present it in this way from from my side. So I'm a Christian, and I recognize that there's an immense role that adoption plays in God's story. But still, personally, I kind of struggle with it. I'm not opposed to it. If my wife really wanted to adopt, I would get on board and I would strive to be the best dad that I could be to the child that we adopt. My contention is why adopt when we have kids? And what I mean by that is I'm looking at that as I look at my kids that we have now and I'm just amazed that this messed up, broken human had anything to do with their creation. And when I see how amazing they are, how incredible they've turned out, I cannot help but think how amazing would the next one be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where I find myself. But the other thing is that, you know, adoption really puts love to the test because your story is an incredible illustration of love. And I think we, we often today mess up what love truly is, uh, instead of it just being this, you know, whimsical, emotional feeling that we have, love is, love is a commitment, love is action, love is selfless, and I can, I can see the demonstration of love in adoption because it's not exactly it's it's not you know it's not a biological child it's not quote unquote yours in the sense that we always think of it as but mm-hmm. adoption when you go through with that you're taking something that technically was not yours and you're claiming it as yours which is an incredible thing so maybe a little bit on you know some of my hesitation if you can speak any to that for other cuz i i'm i know i'm not the only person who feels sure. that way? I've talked to buddies, and you know they're they're in the same boat and category as I am. Uh, but on the process of it, anything that you can add to adoption, go for it. Yeah, um, for sure. So, 
just, you know, as, as you're you sort of introduced the, the spiritual context to it, um, you know, I can't help but think that, um, you know, we're all God's children. Right. And, right. and that, that really sits with me. And when you visit a place like Sierra Leone and you see kids on the side of the road making gravel when they should be in school or playing or doing kid things, um, it just, it really rips, uh, it really rips at your insides. Um, hmm. and, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that you start, uh, you start to ask a lot of questions about, um, why do we have so much and some people have so little? Um, and, uh, you know, even Sierra Leone's history, um, there's some folks might be familiar with the, um, the movie Blood Diamond, which was actually based on a, uh, a, an account of the Sierra Leonean Civil War written by a journalist. So the movie, while entertaining and, and fairly historically accurate, actually, the book itself is phenomenal. Um, it's a it's a reporter's account of what was happening during the um, Sierra Leone Civil War, and so you know, genocide and needless um, slaughter of innocent people, and all of these things. And, and then you think, like, what's going to happen to all of these folks? Um, now, again, like that's not why I made the trip to Sierra Leone. Um, in fact. I was really ignorant about Sierra Leone's history um, up until probably the two weeks before I went. And I, I'm a, I'm a history geek. And so I, you know, sort of dove in um, and then had a much better understanding still nowhere near where I needed to get, but started to develop a better understanding of kind of where these, um, the Sierra Leonean people sort of how they had uh, advanced through time. Um, so there's, you know, there's this piece of it, Anthony, where, uh, yeah, I love my biological children, uh, of course, and I'm, and I'm incredibly proud of what I've been able to do there. But uh, at the same time, I have an opportunity to make a real impact on two kids that truly the only thing they want in life is a family um, where, you know, you could ask so many kids in America and other westernized places or, or you know, in, in areas of the world where people have more and the more fortunate, you know, like, what do you want? Um, who do you want to be when you grow up? And you'll get like a variety of answers. And these kids, they, they want a family. They want a mom. They want a dad. They, they want a love. They want, um, they want hugs. My boys come down every single morning and give me a hug. It's the first thing we do every day. Um, and, uh, when my wife and I were recently on vacation, the very first text message I got first morning that we were gone was from James saying, I missed our hug today. And so I think when you see the video and you see this pure, like real joy and enthusiasm that Abraham had because he'd never gotten a birthday cake with his name on it. Right. Wow. And, and I don't, again, we don't know how old he is. We celebrated his birthday as if he's 12. That's, uh, you know, our best guess is to how old he is. Um, it, it just, it's just different. And then, and then in addition to that, there's this element like people ask me all the time, like, how did you know, um, that you wanted to move into the adoption phase? And the only, the only analogy that I can draw is like, how did I know that I wanted to marry my wife? Um, I, I don't know how to describe that, right? Like sure. what made, 
my wife different? And, and why did I fall in love in 10th grade, um, you know, uh, global world history class? I don't know. Now it took my wife a little bit longer, admittedly. Um, but I, I knew very early on, uh, that this is the woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And, and it, it took my, it's usually life. how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it is typically how it goes. Um, I don't know why that happened. Um, I don't know why James and I went through this really dramatic experience together. I, I don't, um, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but when it was put there in front of me and I'm looking at two boys who can, who can really make a difference in the world, who can really make an impact if they're just given guidance. It's not even just schooling. Yes. We'll, we'll give them an education. Um, we'll make sure that they're fed and clothed and all of those things, but understanding what it's like to have a family unit um, and to be, and to, to be part of something really special and that's unique, you know, um, to the family that will help them start families of their own and healthy families. And they'll be able to go back to Sierra Leone and talk about healthy families and teach what a healthy family is. And um, I'm not sure if that does a great job of answering your question, Anthony. I, I do think a lot of it is um, we act on faith just like anything else. And yeah. it's like the decision, like when we decide to have kids for the first time, like, are we ready you know, and, um, in the counseling world, I, I get to work with a lot of young people and uh, young adults and we'll see, you know, like finances and this, and I, and I, I let them, you know, I let them talk about these things in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, man, if you're waiting to be financially ready, you know, you'll be uh, 65 before sure. you have kids. Um, <laughs> at some point in time, we, we take a leap of faith, uh, right. right. Because it, there's a calling there, um, so is it different? Yeah, it is different. And, and my wife and I, we don't, we don't try to pretend it's exactly the same. Um, but I can tell you that, uh, I love my adopted kids, um, as deeply as I love my biological kids. Um, I'd give my life to, to any of them. Um, it just comes a little bit differently. Uh, the relationship yeah. is a little bit different. And we also, are very cognizant that their biological mother is still alive. And we, we, to the extent that they want a relationship um, now or in the future that is open to them. Um, very excited to take them back to Sierra Leone when the time is right. Um, after they've had a chance to, to fully assimilate here. Um, so yeah, sorry. I, I'm not sure I answered your question, but no, I, I think, I think yeah. you added some incredible things. Um, one thing that I picked up was, you know, putting orphans into that, that family unit. Everyone's designed to be a part of a family. This is God's yeah. design. It's within that family unit, that community. It's what it is. Uh, that, that's where we thrive. That's what we're designed for. And so you, you give them an opportunity to have what God intended them to have, which is an incredible thing. But you also brought up the faith element, which I think is really important in this discussion because so in James, in, in James' letter in the New Testament, he talks about faith a lot. And in James chapter 2, he has this, you know, big little spiel where he says, you know, you, I don't have to tell you what I believe. I don't have to tell you my faith. You can just look at the things that I do, and you'll know what I believe. Like, you'll know what I value. You'll know where my priorities are. And leading into that, when he talks about what true religion is, 
He says in James one twenty seven that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. But the fact that looking after orphans, widows, those who have been disconnected from that family unit and that community, that this is what God sees as pure and faultless religion. Mm-hmm. And then to live that out. I, I think that's an incredible and a powerful thing. And in, in, in a way, I think that especially people of faith, so I'm kind of you know knocking on my doorstep here, uh, we're called to do what you've done. Where there's even even if it doesn't go into adoption, if it goes into sponsorship, like you mentioned and alluded to, that you know I'm going to be the greatest uncle dad sponsorship of all time if this doesn't go through. I think there's a little bit of that. That at minimum we're probably called to do to truly to truly live out pure religion as James talks about. Yeah, I I, I agree. And uh, look, not everybody's going to be in a position. Um, financially or, or mentally, um, or in so many other ways to adopt. Um, my wife and I were blessed and, and we're very fortunate that we could even take this on once it was something we decided to do. But I'm, it's not lost on me, uh, that this simple act of the birthday cake was so incredibly important. And, and I think the context maybe will even add a little bit more to this. We actually in this household, we do presents in the morning. Uh, we do them before school. I don't know why. It's just a tradition that we've started. And so cool. we all get up early, um, earlier than we need to. And we, we, we circle around and we do presents. So Abraham had already received his gifts. He'd done the present thing. Um, and then we, and then we had to wait all day, um, for me to get home from work, uh, cause we're not going to have birthday cake at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. Um, and so this was at like, I don't know, eight thirty, nine thirty at night. I don't remember when I had my last client. And so you would think that it would be the gifts, right? Like that would be the really cool thing. He's not used to getting things, stuff. Sure. Um, the cake, though, was personal. It had his name on it. And it had, you know, little, um, you know, the the design sugar candy with uh, a hurdler because he does hurdles on the track team. Cool. And, um, it, it had little... It had a car because he really likes um, like motorized cars. It had, it had things that were special to him. And I think that's what got him. Like that's what touched him. That this yeah. was somebody took the time. It happened to be, you know, mom and dad, but somebody took the time to do this for him. He was special enough. He wasn't just put into this group of um, orphans that uh, didn't have anything um, and, and had to share everything. This was unique to him. And so, Sponsorship, yes. Um, being a, a terrific uncle, yes. Just baking a cake, right? Like it doesn't have to be uh, a major thing. I think if, if that's the lesson that I took from that moment is all the thought that we put into the gifts, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, a, a Sierra Leonean drum so that he could, you know, have a little bit of his culture back and, and, and trying to be really thoughtful and mindful about the gifts, it was the cake that was the most meaningful thing. And so I kind of walked away from that thinking these little simple acts of kindness that seem really simple to us mean so much to people who don't feel seen um, and and don't have a family and don't feel a part of a group, as you mentioned. Um, 
So there's lots of opportunity to be impactful in young people's lives. In that yeah. Way. Wow. Yeah. Man, hats off to you, Joe. And what you've done is, is phenomenal. You've truly, as far as I see it, you've demonstrated what God really wants us to do. And you've loved in a way that we're called to love and what you've done. And you know, I appreciate you doing it, going through all the hassles that you had to go through to make this happen. Uh, and then I'm really glad that you took time to share the story today. Uh, you know, hearing it again, cause I got to talk to you already before this, but hearing it again, there was a part and I was like, man, I think I have to adopt. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. Uh, so my wife will be glad to hear that. Cause then yeah. I, I don't, I've never shared it on the podcast. She won't get mad if I do, but I think I told you this. Our first son was nine pounds, 11 ounces. Our daughter was nine, three. And then the last chunker was 11, one and a half. So I, she's really looking forward to adoption. If she can do that. Yeah. I, I shared she's that. Life. I shared that with my wife, Jamie the other day. And I, I think her words were something like, Oh my. She's like, wow. Uh, and then yeah. she just sort of stunned silence. And she's like, yeah, adoption's probably a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to, she's going to be glad to hear that. But um, uh, before, before we let you go, your dad has six kids. You have four that are biologically yours, two that you've adopted. Like I said at the beginning, you're kind of a dad among dads. What's one thing that you'd like to leave dads with today? Yeah, I think the the closing message for me is to meet your kids where they're at. Um, they're all individual beings. And I know you and I talked a little bit about this the other day, Anthony, but um, I don't see fatherhood as a, uh, I, I don't see it as our job to to make little mini me's. Um, the last thing the world needs is another me. Um, we survived at this point, and, and now I can do good things. But you know, my mom could probably tell you some stories about middle and high school that uh, made paint me in a different light. Yeah, um, yeah. Each of my six kids are very different. Uh, I have twin girls who could not be any different uh, or more different, I should say. Um, from the way they look to the way they act to the, to how they need to be loved to how they need to be seen to um, how I coach them in their endeavors. Um, I think just from a counseling perspective, that if I could, you know, when I pull this into fatherhood, really just respecting who our kids are and, um, and meeting them there and uh, yeah, trying to help guide them and, and lead them from their spot as opposed to doing it from where we would like for them to yeah. be. Um, that, that would, that's what I would like to leave everybody with that. That's awesome. I think that's helped me build a really strong relationship with my four biological kids. And I feel like it's, it's helping me with the relationship now that I have um, with my two doctor boys. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you again so much for sharing your story, for being with us and for sharing some of your wisdom with us dads. Yeah, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for, for carrying on the message, Anthony. It's, it's, it's awesome. I love the podcast and great work. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do it again. All right. Sounds good. What an absolutely incredible story and such a pure illustration of love. Now you need to go back and watch the video. Now that you've got some context, now that you have the story behind the cake, I hope that this interview has helped you realize that you can have the biggest impact on a child's life. If you're at a point in life where you've been contemplating adoption, I hope that this interview has settled some questions for you. 
But maybe you're not at a point where you can adopt or want to adopt. That's okay. Maybe you still want to help. Let me encourage you today to visit the reigning season. Org. That's the T-H-E reigning, R-A-I-N-I-N-G season, S-E-A-S-O-N dot org, the reigning season dot org. This is the orphanage that Joe was a part of and still is a part of. This is where Abraham and James came from. If nothing else, visit the website to get some context for the sake of the story, but take some time to read about their mission and what they're doing and consider blessing them. Make a donation. It could be a one-time donation. It could be a monthly contribution. Or consider sponsoring a child. And what an incredible thing you can do. You could be just like Joe. You could be the best uncle slash dad slash whatever they need you to be. Sponsor a child. You get the opportunity to chat with them once a month. But best of all, you get to give them hope. I hope that this interview and that this story has moved you the same way that it has moved me. And I hope and pray that you will always remember the story behind the cake. This is Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegrift. Thank you so much for being with me, and I hope you will join me next time.